afternoon, everyone. The tie I'm wearing today is uh, Columbus State Community College. I um, want to mention Kim Hall, a member of my cabinet who worked for me in the Attorney General's office. Um, she was a vice president and general counsel uh, at Columbus State. Uh, also want to mention uh, today is a special day. My friend Michael Murray, who has worked with me for many years, uh, he said, you know, Governor, what today is? And I said, I have no idea what today is. It's Thursday. But uh, he said, uh, you know, what we should be doing today? I said, no. He said, well, we should be at the Little Brown Jug today. So the Little Brown Jug is uh, going today. Uh, my friend Roger Houston uh, will be calling it, uh, as he always does. And so, Roger, good luck in, in calling the race. And uh, next year, uh, we all hope to be there. Eric, let's start with uh, data slides and um, some of our key indicators. Um, noteworthy, uh, 991 cases. Uh, we are now at a 21-day average, I think for the first time, a uh, long, long, long time below 1,000. Um, so we're headed in the right direction. It's slowly going that way. We just hope it, it continues to go that way. And today we're going to have uh, statistics, uh, data and some frankly makes us very optimistic and some uh, makes us makes us cautious and we're just going to kind of lay lay this out uh for you for you today but again below a thousand for uh 21 day average just barely but we're there uh and we hope to continue those numbers continue to go down now let's take the next one look at the next one eric um this is all 88 counties ranked by highest occurrence again two really big things to look at uh, as, as you see how your county is doing. One is the color-coded maps uh, that we have, which takes in seven separate indicators. Uh, the other one is, is this, which is one indicator. And the one indicator is how many cases uh, that county had, new cases that county had in the last 14 days. Nothing beyond that, but the last 14 days, how many cases they had. Uh, and then it's modified uh, for population. So you're actually comparing apples to apples. Uh, let's go to the second slide there, which is the top 10. Uh, and again, we see a, a high number of these counties in, in the western uh, part of our state. Um, uh, we start with Mercer, uh, Putnam, Shelby, Athens, of course, the other, other part, uh, Pike County, uh, Central uh, Ohio, Southern Ohio, uh, Lawrence County, Southern Ohio, uh, Miami, Dark, Wood, Butler, uh, all, all in the West and go on from, from there. But again, that's one of the, one of the indicators to, to take a look at. Uh, let's go to our color code, coded slides, uh, Eric. All right, Eric, I've jumped ahead. You wanna go back? Um, you wanna do the antibody? Let's do the antibody ones. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's my normal pattern. Um, when someone recovers from illness, uh, they typically develop antibodies, which may make them less susceptible to contracting the illness again, at least for a while. Uh, and again, this is what the scientists are studying in regard to COVID. Uh, you can measure these antibodies in a person's blood. That's why uh, one of the kind of interesting indicators uh, is reported from the American Red Cross. Uh, since June, the American Red Cross has been testing all blood, plasma, and platelet donors for COVID-19 antibodies. 
and they have been sharing this with us in the public. Uh, this chart displays, displays, excuse me, the weekly percentage of donors that had COVID-19 antibodies in their blood and compares Ohio's levels with the U.S. overall. Uh, the antibody positivity for Ohio donors has increased from 1.2% in June uh, to 3.3% on September 14th. Uh, this is fairly consistent uh, with what we've seen with the national trend where the U.S. rate is currently at 3.5. Just, uh, just a, some interesting uh, data to take a look at. We thought we would share that with you uh, today. Uh, now let's go to the alert system, our color maps. Uh, we have some changes. This week we have nine red counties, uh, an increase of four from last week. And as I said, some of this data is good, some of it's not good. Uh, the new red counties are Ashland, Delaware, Pike, Scioto, and Stark. Staying red are Butler, Mercer, Montgomery, and Putnam. Uh, Putnam dropped off, I'm sorry, Portage County dropped off the red list, uh, which is good news. 67 counties remained at the same level. Uh, the greatest movement was nine counties moving from yellow to orange. Although we have seen lower case numbers in recent weeks, as we just talked about a moment ago, uh, the distribution of cases continues just to spread out uh, throughout the state. Uh, with more and more cases in the rural parts of Ohio. Uh, interestingly, the counties in Ohio that border Indiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia, uh, most of them are red or orange. Uh, the number of high incident counties uh, dropped from 21 last week to 20 this week, not much of a change. Now, the population of Ohioans living in yellow counties has de decreased during the past four weeks, indicating that we have significant spread of the virus again just more across the state. Let's look at some of the red counties. Um, Mercer County is back on top of our county list for cases per capita this week with uh, 257 cases per 100,000 residents. Um, although there are small long-term care facility outbreaks in Mercer County, uh, the predominant issues are community spread and spread within families, uh, the local health department tells us. Uh, we also seeing a large, uh, some large events in the county, which certainly can contribute to the spread. Um, let's go to Putnam County. Uh, they continue to meet the CDC's threshold for high incidence. The county has added 81 cases of COVID during the past two weeks. Uh, they have a total of 568 cases since it started, just to put that in perspective. But we're really focused on, of course, is the last two weeks. Uh, local health department officials said they continue to see multiple people in the same family spreading the virus to each other. Um, schools are doing well. Uh, most schools have modified their homecoming plans to only have a court and are not having parades or dances to help. And of course, all that is to help control the spread. Uh, let's go to, to Pike County. Uh, they are red for the first time and they are high in the number of incidents per 100,000. Pike County's cases more than doubled during the past week, uh, increasing from an average of one case per day on September 6th to an average of five per day on September 16th. During the past two weeks, the county had 49 cases. Um, they've had 170 total cases since March, just to put that in that 49 in perspective. Uh, the county has 23 cases linked to a large event uh, in a nearby county. Uh, that large event resulted in dozens of contacts who have had to quarantine. Uh, the county also has a small workplace outbreak and some 
cases in the local schools. Again, Pike County and all the counties and schools are just, I think, doing a phenomenal, phenomenal job. Uh, Montgomery County, I continue at red because they meet the CDC's threshold for high incidence. Uh, the county no longer meets this, the COVID hospitalization indicator, which is great. University of Dayton is resuming all in-person classes today. Um, keep the virus from spreading and to know what's going on, the university is doing uh, random testing. Uh, the county does have some small workplace, daycare and long-term care facility outbreaks. Um, let's go south then to Butler County. Uh, Butler County continues as red this week because they meet the CDC threshold for high incidence. The county also has a sustained increase in outpatient visits for COVID-like illness. Uh, remember, that's an early indicator, increasing from an average of 53 visits per day on September 10th to now uh, 70 per day. Um, we have, of course, uh, students, Miami students have returned to on campus uh, going to school. Uh, and of course, Miami is working hard uh, in regard to that. And we'll talk about uh, them in just a moment. Delaware County uh, meets the CDC threshold for high incidence. There's been a sustained increase in outpatient visits, again, an early indicator uh, for COVID-like illness growing from 32 average visits per day, September 7th, now up to 53 per day. Uh, let's go back down south to Scioto County. Uh, they meet four indicators and return, unfortunately, to red this week. The county has had 64 new cases during the past two weeks. Uh, that compares to a total of 480 cases since the beginning of the pandemic, just to put that in perspective. Uh, the county also is seeing a sustained increase in outpatient visits for COVID-like illness. Again, an early indicator. Uh, growing from seven average daily visits on September 9th to 24 average visits on September 16th. Local health department officials said there have been uh, some outbreaks in long-term care facilities and at social gatherings such as at weddings. Ashland County, uh, they are red for the first time. Uh, the county has had a sustained increase in new cases growing from an average of one case per day on September 6th to an average of three and a half cases per day on September 16th. The county also has had a sustained increase in outpatient visits for COVID-like illness uh, going from an average of two per day on September 7th to eight and a half per day average on September 22nd. Uh, Ashland University's Dashboard lists 15 uh, recent positive cases and local health department officials said they've been seeing some small outbreaks associated with a number of social gatherings, some in the workplace and some in long-term care facilities. Uh, Stark County, Stark is red for the first time. Uh, they added 197 cases during the past two weeks. They've had a sustained increase in new cases going from 16 new case average per day on September 6th to 21. Uh, by September 14th. Additionally, the county has had a sustained increase in outpatient visits for COVID-like illness. Again, you're seeing this, this trend in some of these counties. And again, those are early, early indicators. The average daily number of visits uh, there has increased from 12 on September uh, 8th and has doubled uh, by September 20th. Uh, Stark County health officials report that an elementary school closed for a week um, because of the number of students who had to be absent and a problem uh, with staffing, not having enough staff. Let me uh, turn to flu vaccines. Um, I wanna tell you a good story. Uh, great news from our health officials at Canton Harden Health Department. 
Uh, every year, the health department offers a drive-through clinic for its community members. In past years, they've averaged 30 to 40 people who got the flu shot. This year, they had 115 community members get their flu shot, so a dramatic increase. Uh, the health officials attribute the significant increase to people understanding the importance of a flu shot this year, and because the drive-through was careful, that limited the contact and exposure for people who are going through. So our hats off, hats off to great job to Kenton Harden, the health department, and for the folks who got their flu shot. Let me turn now uh, to to higher education uh, and. Uh, just as I've said in regard to our primary uh, elementary, our elementary and, our, and our secondary schools, K through 12, where the, I think the superintendents, the principals, the school boards, staff, teachers uh, are just doing a phenomenal job. Uh, we are also seeing that on our college campuses. Um, this summer, in partnership with our colleges and universities, uh, we introduced, the health department uh, introduced guidance for reopening of Ohio's colleges and universities in a safer way. Uh, right now, our colleges and universities have test processing partners. In other words, they are partnering with a lab, a hospital, um, and they have plans in place that they have implemented. So what we're going to be announcing in, in a moment uh, is an expansion uh, of that, that protocol. And some of the colleges and universities are already doing what we are now uh, recommending, uh, strongly recommending everybody do. Again, let's look, take a look, and this is kind of random. Um, we've got a lot of colleges out there that are testing, but let me just, we're going to pick a few here because we've talked about them in the past. Uh, a couple of them, we've seen a lot of cases, and I want to give you an update. Uh, at the beginning of the semester, the University of Dayton tested all 9,000 incoming students. And out of that group, they had a positivity of 1.2, pretty much what you might expect. Um, after the kids came back to campus, we saw some outbreaks, and the school has worked tirelessly to limit that. Now, last week, the positivity rate was down. It had been way up from there. It was down to 2.2, uh, and they continue to work to drive it lower and think it's going to go lower. So good work to the University of Dayton. Uh, at the end of August at Miami University, the positivity rate was over 5%, uh, and they were averaging 100 new positive cases a day. Uh, this, this week, as they start back in in person, um, and I just maybe explain that, um, a lot of the kids were already back physically. They just had not moved into the dorms, or they had not, they were in residential housing that's outside the university. So this week, Miami starts back, uh, last week, uh, they were moving into residence dorms last week, as I recall. Um, and this week, the same level of testing, uh, their positivity rates have gone from 5% uh, down to 1%. And so under 1%, they're averaging less than 20 new cases today. Uh, they are testing students who live on and off campus and are casting a wide net on testing those who live in congregate settings where someone has tested positive. Uh, so we, again, congratulate uh, the officials uh, at Miami uh, University. Uh, one of our smaller schools, uh, College of Worcester, uh, they are predominantly uh, residential. Uh, when students arrived on campus, seven of their uh, 1,588 students were positive. Uh, that's a low positivity rate of 0.4, uh, less than 1%. 
the college is working with the Wayne County Health Department and advisors from the Wexner Medical Center and focusing on prevention and screening. This past week, they tested 13% of their on-campus students, and they have a positivity rate uh, after having come back still uh, at one-half of 1%. Uh, so this is uh, very, very good news, not much change at all. Uh, Ohio State, uh, beginning of September, the positivity rate was nearly 6%, and the school was averaging 150 positive tests each day. This week, with the same level of testing they're finding, finding uh, a positivity rate around 2%. So from six to two, they're averaging less than 70 new cases each day. Uh, testing has allowed them to isolate positive cases, effectively conduct contact tracing and reduce the spread. So again, let me just say, those are just some schools that we had talked about in the past. I wanted to give you an update on them. We have other schools that are doing testing um, and doing a very, very good job. So let me, let me talk uh, a little bit more about what our changes in guidance is. Uh, while some schools are already doing this, today we're announcing a recommendation that all our residential colleges and universities uh, ensure that they're regularly testing a sample population of their students. So in other words, we wanna make sure that they are testing students who do not have symptoms. So a random sample of their students. Uh, we're leaving it up to them uh, as to what population uh, to test uh, every week, uh, but we recommend at a minimum, a minimum three, three percent. Uh, screening uh, students who do not have symptoms really gives college presidents uh, and their team a real look at what's happening on their campus. Now, campuses don't exist in a bubble. Uh, every single one of our Campuses, uh, most of them at least, are, are close to a, a, a population uh, center, some small villages and some cities, uh, but they students go back and forth. They do intermingle, and so they are part of, of a community. Um, it's important that we continue to know uh, and that the universities continue to know what is going on uh, on their campuses. And it's important for them to know what's going on with their students who don't live on on campus. And so uh, this is our recommendation. We're going to put a more formal guidance out uh, in the next several days. Uh, so again, our expectation is each campus uh, will plan to screen at least 3% of their at risk uh, of their at 3% of their population uh, and to do that uh, every, every week. Again, work with the local health department. What they're finding will dictate how much testing that, that they have to do. Um, we look forward to continuing to work with our colleges and universities uh, as we as we move forward. Uh, I think we have some good news. Uh, John Houston will have some good news later on. Uh, I'm going to uh, give you a little good news. Actually, I'm going to let our uh, director uh, of aging, uh, Ursel McElroy, uh, give, member of our cabinet, give you that good news. But uh, as a kind of a lead in before we get uh, Ursel on here, um, throughout the pandemic, uh, older Ohioans have certainly been particularly hard hit. Uh, seniors who live in a congregate setting are susceptible to the spread of the virus, uh, probably more so than others. At the beginning, our nursing home facilities and assisted living facilities were closed to visitors. And we did that uh, right early on uh, to protect the residents. 
um, and to protect uh, them the, and, and the people who work there the best that we could. We know, however, that this was hard, and it was hard for uh, the residents of nursing homes, uh, residents of assisted living, um, and it's hard for their families. And so uh, on June 8th, uh, outdoor uh, visits have been permitted um, at assisted living facilities so long as all safety standards are met. Uh, those same type visits uh, we started allowing at nursing homes on July 20th. So since, since June for the assisted living and since July for nursing homes, uh, outdoor visitation has been allowed. And again, I know I continue to get, get calls about this, and I know uh, the Lieutenant Governor does as well, and uh, Director McElroy does. Uh, but outdoor visitation has been open since June and July. Um, we leave it up to the nursing homes uh, to set how that's going to, to occur. Um, so if you're not getting that visitation now, uh, you need to talk directly to your nursing home or, or to your assisted living. They may have a good reason for doing it, but you should talk directly directly to them about that. Uh, but we know uh, as it's a beautiful day uh, out today, but we know it's going to get cold. It won't be that long. And we know that outdoor visitation will no longer work. Uh, so we have been working on uh, coming up uh, with indoor visitation. And Director McElroy, I'm going to call on you now. I see you on the screen. And if you can uh, tell everyone what, uh, what, what our plans are as we, as we move forward. And I think, I think it's good news. I think people will be happy with it. And it's being done in a and I think a very, uh, a very responsible way. And the uh, director has been working on this. I know very hard. Director. Uh, thank you and, and good afternoon, Governor. Always good to see you and talk with you. Uh, so along with thousands of nursing home and assisted living residents and their families, and we've been waiting for this day. So you're right, I do believe this is really good news uh, for the residents, families and advocates. We certainly feel your same jubilation about this. For the staff of the facilities, we join your feelings of happiness for your residents. And we also join your feelings of concern about the health risks for these same residents, risks that we know haven't changed and risks that won't change until this coronavirus emergency is past us. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge the strain that has been felt by residents and by their families, and to also acknowledge the strain that has been felt by the staff staff who care deeply and wish for reconnection of the residents and families because they know how very important regular connections are to physical health and mental well-being. And for the families who have lost their loved ones when there were restrictions in visitation, we sadly and humbly acknowledge your grief. And we wish, like all of you, that things were different. As the governor has mentioned, we have talked with countless families We've heard, we felt, and in fact, we still feel the heartbreak. And I can only offer that our hearts are all with you. So with the expansions of visitation now into indoor, I want to talk a bit about how we got here and what that's going to look like. As the governor mentioned, those prolonged loss of connections are critical. We've heard from families, residents, advocates, and we've consulted with many aging professionals, public health experts, and industry representatives. And I'd like to give a particular call out to the Academy for Senior Health Sciences, Leading Age Ohio, the Ohio Assisted Living Association, 
the Ohio Healthcare Association and the Ohio Medical Directors Association for working alongside us. We also are moving in a direction where we are aligned with our federal partners, in particular the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And as the governor pointed out the weather, uh, we know that the days are getting cooler and they're getting cooler pretty fast. So governor, you often remind us that we can do two things at once. And this is certainly true as it relates to our next phase of visitation. It's important for everyone to know that indoor visitation does not signal that we can be less cautious. What it means is that each of us, residents, families, and staff need to be even more vigilant in practicing the very basic yet very critical practices that limit the spread of this virus. Wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance, limit your visiting time, and most of all, stay home if you think that you've been exposed or are feeling ill. On top of COVID-19, we're also going into flu season. So we want every resident to be as strong and as healthy as possible. And remember, when you enter one of these facilities, you are entering someone's home. And to that point, for families who are visiting, always remember that you are walking into the home of not only your loved one, but into the home of their friends and others. So in addition to the basics of mask and hand washing, also stay tuned in to the level of spread happening in your home area. If it is high, that means that your risk of exposure is also higher if you've been out. It is so important that we all do our part. When you walk into a nursing home or an assisted living facility, all of us can unknowingly be carrying the virus and unknowingly spread it to residents and staff and their respective families. So what can you expect with this indoor visitation? I wanna first remind you that this is a first step of others to come as we responsibly restart our indoor phases. So first, the facility has to determine its level of readiness to facilitate indoor visitation safely. So they have to one, consider the case status in that surrounding community. So they have to examine community transmission. Is it low, medium, or high? Two, they have to consider the case status within their facility. Are there COVID cases in the building? Three, staffing levels. Do they have adequate levels to care for residents and safely facilitate the visits? Four, do they have access to adequate testing for residents and staff? In other words, are they compliant with the testing guidelines that apply to their respective settings? Five, personal protective equipment supplies. Do they have the mask, shields, gowns, gloves necessary? And do they have local hospital capacity? In other words, should their facility have an outbreak does their community have the resources to manage it? Or do they have alternative arrangements in place? There's some things that are expected at a minimum for all of the facilities. One, they have to limit entry to personnel who are necessary for the operations of the facilities. So that's gonna look like your healthcare providers, your governmental representatives and regulators. But it also includes hospice personnel who provide core services, clergy and hairstylists. They have to screen all staff and visitors upon entering the facility. They have to maintain a daily log of individuals that enter the building. The visits must be scheduled in advance. They must occur in designated visitation areas. They will be allotted 30 minutes maximum. And this makes it possible to have a meaningful interaction, but it also allows more families time to visit. And it gives the facilities time in between each visit to sanitize spaces. Two visitors are permitted 
per resident per visit. And while there is no set age for the visitor, you must be able to social distance and wear a face covering. It's important to note that all visitors will be required to wear a mask supplied by the facility. In addition to regular visits, visitation will also be permitted in compassionate care situations. So this is not reserved for end of life situations only, but on occasions where compassionate interaction is vital to the quality and preservation of life. So a few examples would be maybe a resident who is grieving after a loved one passed away. Or perhaps there's an individual who needs cueing and encouragement with eating or drinking, or they may be experiencing weight loss or dehydration. Or perhaps you have a resident who used to talk and interact with others, but is experiencing emotional distress, seldom speaking or crying more frequently. We also are going to permit communal activities with safety protocols and distancing. So being able to eat together, being able to participate in activities together, but in a safe manner. The facilities will have to develop a written and transparent plan with these new requirements so that families and residents are fully informed and have an appreciation of what to expect upon arrival. And it is our expectation that facilities will not restrict visitation without a reasonable clinical or safety cost. The other piece that's really exciting is that the facilities will also regularly report visitation information to the state via an online dashboard that will be accessible at www.coronavirus.gov and it will be launched when indoor visitation begins. And this dashboard will be very important in helping family members understand and make decisions around visitation. So with a few easy clicks, you'll see the status of outdoor and indoor visitation, maximum hours for a visit, maximum number of visitors, and contact information for the facilities. So at this point, I wanna close Governor, but I want to close by restating what we've already said, and that this moment in time, albeit a long moment in time of this COVID emergency belongs to all of us, to every Ohioan, and we own our behavior, and our actions and inactions are going to be so critical. So simply by remaining focused and following the essential steps to stay safe and to keep those we love and those around us safe, we can do this, and I am really excited. Thank you, sir, for the opportunity to talk about this. Director, that's very, I'm sure that's very good news to many families out there. So uh, to summarize, they'll be able to go up and look at a, a dashboard and see if they have a loved one in a particular nursing home, they can look that nursing home up and find it. And again, how do they find that? I'll go to www.coronavirus.gov. We intend to launch it uh, when indoor visitation begins. And I think it will be a helpful tool for the families, for the communities, and for the facilities. Okay, and, and that visitation will start when? Well, sir, I was gonna give you the honor, but if you allow me, I'm happy to say <laughs> it will be October 12th, October 12th. This gives the facilities enough time to prepare right. their physical plants, share information with families, and just to have a really so, good transition. So by October 12th, facilities, we hope are ready. Uh, they can start that. Uh, and there'll be by then there'll be this dashboard up where you can go look and, and find what the what, what the contact information is and, and what the what the rules are and how you do it. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Director, thank you very much. You. Uh, I'm going to go to another member of our cabinet, Director Jeff Davis. 
He is uh, Department of Developmental Disabilities. Uh, and I think we have some good news for families uh, of those who have developmental disabilities. Um, during the pandemic, we've had limited visitation at the intermediate care facilities uh, for our fellow citizens. Uh, these are licensed facilities where individuals living with developmental disabilities can live and do live. Uh, they vary in size, some as small as four residents, uh, some with over 100 residents. Uh, these facilities and direct service providers have worked hard to keep residents safe uh, during the last seven months. Uh, like nursing facilities, uh, we've limited visits for family and friends uh, only to outdoor visitation. That's what it's been so far. Uh, we know this has been hard for residents. We know it was hard for loved ones. Uh, colder months are coming. Uh, it's now time to update that guidance. So, Director, um, Director Davis, you want to talk to us a little bit and tell us what we're doing here. I do, Governor. Thank you so much for having me. So I appreciate the comments of Director McElroy, you and Director McElroy. I think that uh, you summarized there's a lot of similarities between the approach of visitation and skilled nursing and our approach with our intermediate care facilities. But it is, has been a journey. And if we can chat about that just a touch, you know, we started with that stay at home and we did that out of a sense of health and safety. We all did. And we asked a lot of patients out of our families you know, and friends and individuals. And, and they did, and they understood as we tried with priority to keep people safe and healthy. But we also understand, and Director McElroy said this so well over time, is that that, that human contact is so very important and so essential. And yes, we've tried to do that by computer and we've done it ultimately by outside visitation uh, and it's been successful, but we know on the part of the individuals that we support and certainly families again and as friends, that, that that actual intimacy, you know, of being together matters so very much. And so this is just that next natural step. We're, I think all of us are trying to find some sense of normal in a virus environment that's not normal. And this is just that next step of finding a little bit of normalcy and getting people together. So we are, you know, we are very pleased, we appreciate we appreciate, Governor, your efforts in working with us and Director McElroy as we work together. So we've got that kind of structure. And beginning on Monday, actually the 28th of September, we will have indoor visitation. It will be structured in many of the same ways that Director McElroy talked about. So we ask continued patience of families you know, and friends. So we'll do that. We have a lot of, as you mentioned, Governor, we have so many different types of settings in our intermediate care facilities. So in some cases it will be separate buildings. In some cases it will be very isolated settings, you know, within an overall residential building. But in some cases we have four people living together. And so there's not separate buildings and we'll have to ask, you know, we'll have to ask patients uh, with everyone as we set aside, you know, a spot, you know, in that home so that we can sort of isolate in that visitation and we take the very same precautions that Director McElroy talked about. But but we are happy because we know it's been so very hard. We know this is a human, right? We are a human system and it matters so very much uh, to those that we support and their families to be together where we can. So we ask patience and understanding as we take this next step, as we do try and do it as safely as possible. But we are, of course are 
are very appreciative that we can do it. Director, thank you very much. Uh, I know that's good news for families, good news for residents, um, and thank you for all you do to, to take care of them, protect them, uh, but at the same time, allow them to live their lives, uh, which is what really the goal of your department is. So mm -hmm. thank you very, very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, let me go to a, something that uh, I know is a huge problem, and uh, we can't solve every problem, and, and but we can work on it. Uh, and that is something that uh, people tell me every day. Uh, and that is the mental health problems that go with this pandemic. Um, we see it with young people, we see it with older people, um, presents this virus besides all the other things it's caused, uh, has caused some real mental health uh, problems uh, for many of our citizens. And so we have to work on this uh, and we have to continue that work. Uh, we are talking uh, today uh, to the leadership of the General Assembly uh, to come up with some additional funds. Uh, and we don't have that worked out yet, but uh, they share our concern uh, and, our, and our passion uh, about helping people, uh, making sure that mental health uh, help is there. Um, so we're going to uh, get additional funds and we'll be able to announce this, uh, we hope, uh, early next week, uh, but additional funds uh, for our K through 12 schools. Uh, they already uh, are receiving uh, wellness funds. And um, I've seen what some of the schools have done with it and it's been phenomenal. Um, but we also know that as the pandemic uh, has moved along, the, the need for this in our K through 12 kids uh, has gone up. Same way with our colleges and universities. I had the opportunity yesterday to be on a couple uh, conference calls with the presidents of our colleges and universities, both public and private in Ohio. Uh, and I told them we would try to help them uh, with the mental health needs of their students. Uh, we're also gonna try to get mental health, uh, more assistance back into the individual communities. Uh, which is where the service uh, has to get delivered and, and where it is. Uh, we also know uh, that some of our renters uh, are under great stress, uh, and we need to, to help them uh, deal with that uh, the same way with some of our small businesses. So uh, nothing to announce today. We're working uh, very closely with the General Assembly. They share our concern about these issues. We're trying to work out details with them. And I hope by, by next week that we'll be able to announce at least some of this and uh, give you an indication of where we're going. But the mental health uh, concerns is something that uh, weighs heavy on my heart. And I know it does the members of the General Assembly, uh, the Senate President, the Speaker, uh, and, and everyone else. And so we're going to continue to work on this. Um, might mention the National Guard, uh, the next presidential debate, the first one this year. Uh, it's Tuesday in Cleveland, and Ohio is uh, very happy to be hosting this. Uh, last night, Cleveland officials sent a formal request for us to make available the Ohio National Guard, and we are, we are granting that. Uh, in the past, uh, when we've been asked for help uh, by any of our cities, uh, we have been able to supply uh, the National Guard. Uh, they are there to uh, do, a, they do a great job, basically, as backup. Uh, but um, it's important. And so we thank the Guard, men and women of the Guard, who will be deployed there. Uh, 
we've talked in the past a lot uh, about uh, a police reform bill uh, that we have pending um, in, in the legislature. We've been talking a lot with legislators about uh, police reform, uh, Representative Phil Plummer, uh, for example, and um, that is something that we hope that the legislature will take up maybe in the lame duck session. Uh, but what I want to talk to, uh, about today uh, is something that we've been able to do without changing the law in Ohio, without uh, legislative passage or anything. Uh, and that is, I previously announced our new Ohio Office of Law Enforcement Recruitment. In June, I announced the creation of this office as part of our overall work to improve the relationship between Ohio's law enforcement officers and our citizens. The goal of the Ohio Office of Law Enforcement Recruitment is to support local law enforcement agencies to not only recruit more diverse officers, but also to recruit the right officers. Uh, we have close to a thousand police departments in the state, uh, law enforcement agencies in the state. Uh, if you count the sheriffs and the, and the local police departments, and the township police departments, so a lot of different uh, law enforcement departments. And one of our goals is to constantly help each one of them uh, to improve with training, uh, to help uh, each one of them with recruitment. Uh, so I'm happy to announce today uh, that Sarah Shendi has come on board with us to serve as the director of the Ohio Office of Law Enforcement Recruitment. Uh, she was one of our law enforcement training officers at the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy, which is when I first got to know her when I was uh, the, the attorney general. Uh, she is also an officer for the Copley uh, Police Department, uh, has been there since 2008. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us, we'll make sure you're on there. Hi, Governor, I'm here. Well, good, good afternoon. Tell us a little bit uh, quickly about your background and how you got to this, to this point, and then maybe tell us a little bit about the office. We're really just kind of getting it, it rolling, and thank you for being willing to, to take this assignment on. Um, thank you for having me and thank you for bringing me on. Uh, I feel very honored and privileged to work with the people that I'm currently working with right now um, at the Office of Law Enforcement Recruitment. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, as you know, I'm a Middle Eastern Muslim female. Coming into law enforcement was quite a journey. Um, not the easiest one, but not the hardest one. Um, I shared with you on an earlier phone call that when I decided to go to the police academy after I graduated from Kent State, that I didn't even tell my family. And when I did tell my family, I didn't tell my dad. And um, luckily, he wasn't even in the country when I graduated from the police academy, so that was good. Um, I value education and training, so I do have my bachelor's and master's in criminal justice. Prior to coming into law enforcement, I worked in uh, mental health for Portage County, and I also worked in corrections for Okada County. And um, this, this job is my absolute passion. I tell every single person I meet that this is the best job on the planet. And every day I'm truly thankful to be in uniform. Um, it's funny because when I was at Opata, I was there for almost four years. I had a really hard time adjusting, not being in uniform every day. And I always remind myself that the effect that we have on others as human beings is the most valuable currency there is. And I always reminded the officers that came through the building at Opata and the officers that I see now 
that every single day we're in uniform, we have the potential of changing someone's life. And if we can't change their life completely, we can make it a little bit better when we get sent to their house on the worst day of their life. I'm excited about the Office of Law Enforcement Recruitment. We have a lot of projects going on. Uh, some of them include getting together with agencies. So every police department that's hiring in the state of Ohio can let us know and we can put those job openings on our website because that's something that currently does not exist and it does make the hiring and the application process a lot harder for potential recruits. Uh, we're also having uh, a mentorship program because having support while you're going through the academy is extremely important and especially when it comes to women and minorities you know someone from an Indian community or a Middle Eastern community or a Jewish community might want to go to the police academy, but they might be afraid of the backlash, if you would, from the community because of the cultural expectations. And we want to offer them the support that's necessary to successfully complete the academy. Because once you decide to become a police officer, it is a life altering decision and one that we want to support. Uh, some other things that we're working on currently uh, in terms of prioritizing our list is we are working on a website. And that website is going to enable the public as well as police departments to get in touch with me and my team members. And we are there to answer any questions. We're going to have a frequently asked questions page. And we're really going to try to educate the public on law enforcement duties in the state of Ohio, because I really believe that the average citizen does not know what we do as police officers. They think that the majority of our job is traffic stops and handling accidents. And usually I joke around and I tell them, no, that's the troopers. But for local law enforcement, uh, statistically speaking, only 20% of our job is self-initiated activity. And about 80% of our job, we res basically respond to calls and act as mediators and peacekeepers. Uh, so uh, the one other thing that I'm really excited about is we plan to have videos up on the website. And we're gonna interview officers from around the state from very different backgrounds um, about their journey into law enforcement, how they became a police officer and why they decided to stay, as well as some of the uh, challenges that they may have encountered. Well, thank you very much. And, and uh, I think what we'll do in the next few months, every, every uh, month or so, we'll kind of bring you back and you can kind of tell us what, what's going on. There are a lot more questions that I, I would like to ask you, but uh, we, we probably need to to move, move on here, but uh, thank you for taking the job. Thank you for doing it. Uh, this is an important mission. My pleasure. Very, you know, it's thank very, you. very important what, what you're doing. So thank you very much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank Lieutenant you. Governor. Thank you, Governor. Uh, I'm gonna, I know we're uh, short on time, so I'm gonna try to plow through these things. Uh, uh, I'll start our I'll start first with the sports order update. Uh, starting back in May, we uh, began to return to play, uh, first with uh, skill sessions, then scrimmages, and then competition. Uh, about four weeks ago, uh, we uh, had a complete return to play in the sense that all uh, schools are, uh, were back in action. Uh, all sports were back in action. Um, that might mean... Um, contact, non-contact sports, all of them. Uh, even though 17 states uh, did not have football, and including the District of Columbia, uh, we have been successful uh, with the protocols that have been put in place uh, at operating sports and, and being able to do so while minimizing the spread of the virus. Uh, and 
as we've done throughout, we're trying to incrementally get back into things as we learn from these experiences, we begin to uh, expand opportunities. And one provision we had in place is that we were limiting competition to one team per calendar day. Uh, however, um, we're now going to remove that prohibition uh, to limit it to one team. Meaning, for example, if you were a soccer team playing in a tournament, you might play one game on Saturday now and then have to come back and play the next game on Sunday. Uh, we would allow you to play both of those games in a single calendar day. Um, and uh, that prohibition uh, will be removed in the new order. However, what we will be adding is something that we know works, which is to make sure that everybody's following the protocols. Uh, and uh, we're adding a provision that will require each sports venue uh, to cooperate with the local inspectors who are who are um, uh, in charge of making sure that these uh, that there is compliance uh, that these inspectors uh, will um, uh, be able uh, to have the authority to terminate the competition if they're not following uh, the uh, spectator and participant rules. So uh, we're loosening up. Uh, the opportunity or, or adding opportunity, but we're also going to make sure that we follow the rules so that we can continue to maintain these uh, events in a healthy and uh, successful manner. Um, two other things I want to touch about, touch on briefly, a uh, little good news ab about Innovate Ohio. As you know, we, uh, we want to use technology to improve the way we serve our customers. Uh, you signed, Governor, an executive order last year requiring our agencies to migrate their data to the Innovate Ohio platform. Fortunately, the Department of Health was one of the first ones to do that, and um, uh, that enabled us to uh, uh, d do a lot of great things uh, uh, on uh, with their data, uh, and this caught the attention of the Na uh, caught national attention uh, from the Center for Digital Government, which is a national research and advisory institute focused on technology policy and uh, the Innovate Ohio platform and partnership with the Department of Health today was recognized with the Government Experience Award for their COVID-19 response. And that ranges everything from dashboards that we use to update people uh, and get that data out there as fast as we can, uh, deploying digital forms for PPE and data exchange with local health departments, um, uh, leveraging uh, uh, people's digital identity at the local level to uh, rapidly grant cities and health departments access to customized data and, um, and to reduce the time that local healthcare workers uh, have to spend on these follow-ups. Those are just a few things that enables to do it shows how if you do this right you get technology in the right places we can improve customer service i also want to be clear uh, this does not mean that our work is done uh, this is only the beginning um, but i'm i hope that others will see particularly other agencies that when you do this like we saw with the bmv uh, like we're seeing with the department of health that when we do these things that we can really improve the way we're we're serving our customers and and also, by the way, improve data security. That's an essential part of this. You improve data security when you get this done. And then finally, an announcement on the Choose Ohio First Scholarship Program. This is something that uh, is, of course, near and dear to me because we helped uh, create the program uh, when I was Speaker of the House. This is a STEM scholarship 
for Ohio high school graduates to keep them in Ohio, uh, to help build STEM skills, which we know make them more employable, allow them to earn more, provides the talent that businesses need. So far, we've had 19,500 students participate in the, in the program. There's really been an emphasis on attracting women and um, a non-traditional minority students into the program. We're going out for a new request for proposals uh, with the program that will add another opportunity for 1,400 more students, deploy $20 million over the next five years for the program. But we're trying to improve the way we do it, involve more business community input into the program to make sure it's aligned with what businesses need, uh, to provide flexibility for a single application uh, across all 45 programs that, the, that it can uh, ultimately touch. And um, um, you're going to be able to find all this information at ohiohighered.org, ohiohighered.org. We want our community colleges, our independent and four-year colleges and universities uh, to uh, go on there, find out the new rules for the program, engage in it so that you can offer a Choose Ohio scholarship to your students who want to major in STEM and um, and go do the great things that we know are changing the world every day in healthcare, in science, technology, engineering, and math. So thanks, Governor. Ready for questions. First question today is from Andrew Tobias at cleveland.com. Hi, Governor, can you hear me? Andrew, yes, I can. Uh, so my question is, we saw that there's a report that in Erie, their sewage testing showed an increase in coronavirus levels following Labor Day. And since a couple of weeks have passed since Labor Day, we're wondering if uh, sewage testing in other communities around the state have revealed anything similar to that. Okay, I'm sorry, I missed, I missed the first part. Are we talking about Erie County? Did you say Erie County? Um, I think it was actually Erie, but it could have been Erie County. Um, but yes, there was a report that they showed higher levels of coronavirus in their sewage levels there. Yeah, I'll get you the report on the sewage uh, on Tuesday. Um, you know, this is a, a work in progress, and uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, I'll try to give you a report what we're seeing all over the state. Again, it's early on. They had to establish some baselines, um, but I'll be able to give you more of that on Tuesday. Ha happy to do that. Next question is from John London at WLWT in Cincinnati. Hey, John. We will come back to John. Next question is from Laura Bischoff at the Dayton Daily News. Uh, hi, Governor. Um, so President Trump has indicated that he may not accept the uh, election results or a peaceful transfer of power. Um, what do you say to that? And, and what's your response to efforts to undermine the confidence in the election process? One of the things that we have done throughout our history well uh, is the transfer of power. Um, in an election. Uh, sometimes it's an incumbent president and is reelected and that person is reelected. Uh, sometimes it's an open seat. Um, and sometimes it is um, you know, a situation where the incumbent loses. Uh, but whatever the situation, however hotly contested these races have been, uh, however riled up everybody is on each side, 
and um, we've had those throughout our history. Um, when the results are in, people accept it. Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a book, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but um, when I was in, in, I guess, in junior high, uh, <clears throat> I read a book uh, called The Making of the President, 1960. Uh, and my, actually, my grandmother gave me the book. And if you just look and read nothing more than the first two pages, uh, it, it's almost in uh, Theodore White, almost in poetry, uh, not prose. Uh, it talks about what makes us unique and uh, why we have been able to do this for so long. And part of what makes us different is this historically. Now, we've got more countries that can do it today. But historically, what's made us different from the beginning is we have a peaceful transfer of power. And the winner wins, the loser loses. Sometimes, as in uh, 2000, uh, you know, obviously the, that ended up in the Supreme Court. But uh, the loser, Albert Gore, didn't agree with it. He accepted it. Um, the first presidential race that I, I, I watched uh, as a kid was Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, my, fu my future wife uh, was for Kennedy and uh, uh, I was for Nixon. Um, but despite a, a tough, tough battle, uh, there were people who uh, told Nixon, well, the election's been stolen from you. Uh, they cheated you in Chicago. Uh, and he made the decision that not to contest it. Uh, he made the decision to accept what the results were. Now, everything is fact-specific, and you have to look at what, uh, you know, there may be a time when one candidate says, look, we need a recount here, recount there, all within the confines of the law. And that's a, that is fine. People have the right to continue to, to battle. But in the end, in the end, uh, we will have a president. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the incumbent or the challenger. Uh, it's going to be uh, Joe Biden or it's going to be Donald Trump. And uh, those of us who, if we win, we'll be happy. Uh, if we lose, we lose. But those who lose will accept it because that's what we do in America. Governor, Governor can I add something about the elections? Um, I just want to reiterate to folks and remind them that Ohio has a history of running great elections. Uh, and we have a great bipartisan system in our state. We have 88 county boards of elections because the, 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 the elections are run by the local boards of elections. The, the ballots are tabulated there. They are, they, are, they are cast locally and counted locally. And in those 88 county boards, there is a director and a deputy director of that board of elections. One is a Republican and one is a Democrat. And whoever the director is, of one party, the board of that party, because there are four people on the board, the board is of the other party. So it is there is a check and balance at our local boards of elections where Democrats and Republicans look over each other's shoulder, hold each other accountable, and we have a strong tradition, just as the governor talked about, a peaceful transition to power. We have a strong tradition in Ohio of, of running good, bipartisan, fair, elections and and i'm confident that that will happen this year as well that's from the former secretary secretary of state 
Um, look, I'm trained as a lawyer, and I kind of like the adversarial system. And I look at the election, how they're run is in, in that sense. There's a member at the precinct level and at the county level of each party. Uh, members of each party are represented. And uh, we run elections, and, and we do it well in Ohio. We'll go back to uh, John London at WLWT in Cincinnati. Hey, John. Governor, I think, I think you can hear me now. Uh, some I can. school districts, thank you. Some school districts have um, single digit positive cases uh, resulting in triple digit quarantines. Currently, one down in this area, there are eight positives and 184 in quarantine, uh, leaving students who feel fine and exhibit no symptoms unable to be in class for 14 days. And I'm wondering what adjustments you might be willing to consider, such as maybe reducing quarantine time, the CDC standard, as I understand it, is 10 days, or having quarantine students tested right away and maybe be allowed to return to the classroom setting immediately, or in three or to five days, let's say, if the result is negative. Yeah, John, I've asked our team to, to take a look at that. Um, you know, these are really not my decisions. These are local health department's decisions, state department of health, and they, they're guidance is based on the best medical information they can have. Uh, what I do know is that uh, in, in some schools, uh, because they, they get the specific facts um, and, and people have come forward, they've been able to narrow that down. We would obviously want this narrowed as much as possible. We don't want kids out of school. We don't want them uh, having to be quarantined uh, at all. So we're going to continue to look at that. Uh, but what I'm going to do is rely on the best medical advice we get. Um, you know, we, we went into this with the idea uh, that people said, look, we want to go to school. Uh, and it has been, I think, a success. Um, yes, there's been some glitches here and there, undoubtedly, there always is. But, but parents have done a good job. Students have done a phenomenal job. Uh, and, and teachers and, and principals have done a great, great job. They work with their local health department. So we're always open to look and see, or, or, you know, is this right? Or we got it adjusted correctly. But the whole idea is, you know, we've got to stay on this virus. Um, if the community has widespread or whatever the community has, that's going to be reflected in the school. Uh, and when kids are exposed, then they, we have to deal, deal with that. So the whole idea is what we're doing with our health orders and our health guidance is to keep our schools open. Um, but we're, we certainly will continue to look at that and adjust that if we think that the best medical information is evolving and uh, it's different. And I've, I've had some exchanges, some very uh, delightful exchanges with some superintendents uh, who have kind of taken issue with where we are. I've told our team to take a look at that. They made some interesting points. Um, but we, what we want to do is, is it, we're in this for the long run. We don't know when we're going to have the vaccine and we don't know when everybody's going to be have vaccine available. So we've got to look at this, not just for before Christmas, but after Christmas and how do we keep as many kids in school as we can. And that's ultimately what, what the goal is. Next question is from Jim province at the Toledo blade. Good afternoon, governor. Hey Jim. Hi. Uh, the Ohio Senate yesterday passed Senate Bill 311 uh, to prevent Ohio governors from issuing quarantine orders affecting anyone who's not already diagnosed with or known to have been in contact with someone with an infectious disease. Uh, the bill sponsor said you never had the authority to impose such quarantines in the first place. Um, what is your reaction to this and will you veto this bill if it gets to your desk? 
Well, the people who voted for this bill, the members of the Senate, are, are uh, my friends. Um, they think that they are doing the right thing with the vote. Uh, we, so we start with that. Um, but this bill cannot become law. Uh, it would make it impossible for a future governor, future health departments, um, to deal with whatever the emerging crisis is. Uh, and more importantly, uh, it would not be in the best interest of Ohioans as far as their health. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say it was early on in this pandemic. Uh, and let's say the president of the United States had not yet imposed um, an order stopping flights coming in from China. And let's say you had a group of citizens, people who came in from Wuhan. Let's say you had a group of citizens who came in from Wuhan. Uh, do you mean that the state should not have the ability to quarantine these people? Uh, that makes absolutely no sense. What about if today, from some, let's say, um, in Mexico, Central America, South America, there was an area that's red hot uh, with the COVID virus. And we have people who are coming, immigrants maybe coming up here. Um, are you maybe some legal, maybe some illegal? Are we saying that we don't have the ability, we shouldn't have the ability to quarantine those people and protect Ohio citizens? And I could go on and on with examples. So yes, of course I'll veto the bill. I mean, look, this makes absolutely no sense. And I think when you, you know, when you play it out and look at all the different scenarios, um, you know, we cannot be defenseless. I will not leave Ohio uh, defenseless uh, against this kind of uh, uh, spread and attack. Um, so no, I will certainly veto the bill. Next question is from Marty Schladen at the Ohio Capitol Journal. Good afternoon, Governor. Hi, Marty. Um, I want to follow up on Lord's question, um, particularly as you're Donald Trump's honorary co-chair in Ohio. Uh, the president again cast doubt on the legitimacy of any election that didn't make him winner, and he would not say that he had, would abide by the results of that, and that's created some fear out there that his followers won't either. Do you specifically condemn those remarks? I'm not going to condemn anything. I don't know what's in his heart and in his mind. And, you know, look, anybody for, who runs for president um, wants to win. Uh, and they want, they're going to fight. And they're going to fight all the way through. But without exception, I believe, throughout American history, the loser, once it's determined that you are the loser, concedes. Uh, and we move on. That will happen whoever loses this election. So, I, you know, I understand, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the news media the last 24 hours about that, but uh, that is not going to happen. Um, whoever loses, whoever loses, uh, once it's the votes are counted and, and, you know, if any any recounts or anything are done, once that's done and it's determined that we have a winner, then the loser goes off stage. That's the way, that's the way our system works. We've had no one who's, who's not done that, to my knowledge. Um, that will continue. Next question is from Dan Perlman at WCMH in Columbus. Hello, Governor. 
President Trump intends to nominate his selection for the Supreme Court on Saturday, 38 days before the November election. You spent 12 years in the Senate yourself. Given that experience, do you believe this nominee can and should receive a fair hearing and vote so close to November 3rd? And following up on that previous question, given that the president is not committing to a peaceful transition of power, does this cause you to waver in your support of him at all? No, I support the president. Uh, look, the president has uh, put on the bench, uh, the district courts, circuit courts. He did exactly what he said uh, he was going to do. He's put on some fine, fine people, uh, put people on the Supreme Court as well. Um, and so, no, no, I, I certainly support the president. I served 12 years in the United States Senate. Uh, 12, all of those years I was on the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. Uh, we had a number of, of uh, nominations come through. We had two for the Supreme Court. Uh, my position always was, and if I was on there today, it would be the same. Uh, and that is that um, I would wait because I was on Judiciary Committee and we were going to have a hearing. Uh, I would wait until the hearing process was over uh, to announce whether I was voting for that nominee or not for that nominee. I did the same thing with district courts, I believe, and, and, and circuit courts by and large. Um, so if I was on there today, that's the position that I would I would take. But the president has a constitutional right to submit names to the Senate. Uh, Senate has a constitutional right to um, vote on them. Um, look, it's, this is a, a, a different, I won't belabor everyone with the long history of the filibuster, but uh, you know, it, it, it was friends on the other side who decided that uh, a filibuster for district courts and circuit courts were not the, you know, were, were going to go away. And then, you know, it was clear if they had been in power, they probably would have done the same, would have done the same thing for the Supreme Court. And then Republicans did the same thing for the Supreme Court. And that's water over the dam. That's why I have an opinion about that. But it's water, it's water, uh, water over the dam. And so for the people who are critical uh, of, of, you know, the president or Senate Republicans or Mitch McConnell. Look, both parties have switched positions. Let's be candid about it. Uh, it's not just Republicans that have seemingly switched position. It's Democrats who switched their position. That's what it is. So, um, you know, look, I, I, if I was in the Senate, I would vote, uh, you know, in, in, in the committee. When the chairman called the vote, I would vote, and uh, I would vote when the vote came up on the Senate floor. Next question is from Molly Kowick at WHIO in Dayton. Molly. Hey, Governor. This is a follow-up from a couple of other reporters' questions. So along with the Lieutenant Governor, your co-chair of President Trump's Ohio re-election campaign, Yesterday, the president cited concerns over mail-in ballots leading to election fraud and would not commit to a peaceful transition of power, as we've mentioned. So I have a two-part question. Is the state of Ohio committed to counting every mail-in ballot? And part two, if by the time all the mail-in ballots, including those the absentee ballots that are counted and Joe Biden were to win Ohio, what has the Trump campaign said to you about the legislature setting aside Ohio's popular vote because of voter fraud concerns? and letting the legislature exercise its power to directly choose electoral college members. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting some real feedback uh, and other voices on your last one. I, 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 so if, if you could just do it again, uh, I, I certainly missed the last part of it. What if the Trump campaign said what? 
Sure, sorry, I, can I apologize. I, that's I okay. I can ask the full question again. Um, so is the state of Ohio committed to counting every mail-in ballot? And if by the time all ballots, including mail-in ballots, are counted and Joe Biden were to win Ohio, what has the Trump campaign said to you about the legislature setting aside Ohio's popular vote because of voter fraud concerns and letting the legislature exercise its power to directly choose electoral college members? Well, no one, look, no one wants to see um, the people of the state not have the say in regard to what electors are selected. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's been a long, long time. Um, you know, we don't want to have that situation. We want the people to be able to vote and their votes to be counted. Do I think that Ohio has the ability to count the votes? Yes. Uh, it, it will do it consistent with the law. Uh, the law, as I understand it, and the secretary, former Secretary of State can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but is basically you have to, if, if you're sending it in by mail, you have to have a postmark by Monday. Uh, and then it is a 10 days, there is a 10 day window for that uh, to get there. And so that law would be followed. Those votes would be counted when they were within the confines of the, of the, of the statute. Um, it, so everything is fact specific, but um, it, your question, your second part of your question, you know, if the campaign, uh, Trump campaign asked me to work with the legislature to set aside uh, the vote of the people of the state of Ohio, no, that's not what should happen. No. No, it's the people's vote. And, and look, we have what we call absentee ballots in Ohio. And we allow absentee ballots for any reason. When I started voting many years ago, you had to have a reason. You had to, you were going to be gone or you're sick or something. Today, you don't have to have a reason. You have ample opportunity to do that. We've encouraged people right now to do it again. You know, get your absentee application in to the Board of Elections so you can get that back and get that mailed in if that's what you're going to do. If you're going to vote in person, then you're going to, you'll have 13 hours on election day to vote in person. Or if you want to go to the Board of Elections, you can, you can do that. So. Uh, I don't know, John, if you have anything to add to uh, Molly's question, but or no, anything I, to my I, answer, I guess. No, you did. You did. A, you did a great job about how I would just add this about about absentee ballots or mail-in ballots. Every state has a different set of rules. Ohio's have been in effect for more than a decade, and they're tried, true, and, true and tested. Uh, we're not a state that just mails out ballots to everyone which I believe is primarily the concern that the president has expressed about some states and their process for mail-in ballots. Ohio's process of mail-in ballots is the same process that we used the last time when the president won the state by eight points. So that nothing has changed about it. It worked well during the president's previous election. It will work well in this election uh, because as I mentioned earlier, it's a bipartisan process. There are numerous checks and balances, both in requesting your ballot, receiving your ballot, and returning your ballot that makes sure that the person casting the ballot is indeed the one uh, who is uh, the, the one who, or the person returning the ballots, the one who cast the ballot, uh, that it's a legally cast vote. Uh, and that system has worked here. Uh, it is uh, the same system that's in place this year, and, and it will, people should have confidence in it. Next question is from Kevin Landers at WBNS in Columbus. 
Hello, Governor. Hey, Kevin. I don't know if you've seen this video uh, that's been going around the internet uh, of an incident that happened in Logan at a football game, <clears throat> excuse me, where a young woman was attending the game, uh, was approached by law enforcement in the stands because she was not wearing a mask. Uh, she refused uh, to leave, uh, was later handcuffed, uh, and uh, was ordered to leave the premises. Uh, do you think police are justified um, in approaching uh, fans in the stands who are not wearing masks. Um, in this case, um, I just want to make clear that it was she wasn't arrested for failing to wear a mask. She was asked to leave the premises and continue to violate the school's policy. But I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. Sure. Let me let me just start uh, by saying that <clears throat> we're going through a difficult time. Um, a lot of things going on. We've got a presidential election that is in its final stretches. Uh, we've got a tragedy that occurred in Louisville some months ago. Uh, we have an announcement about uh, indictments not being returned. Um, we have some of our citizens who, um, you know, don't want to wear a mask. Most do. Um, and, and I just think that whatever we can do, to look at this as it really is us against the virus. Um, on the other issues, we may have disagreements, but uh, we have still a lot more in common as Ohioans than, than we don't have in common. Uh, and intolerance and love and, and people trying to work together, um, I, I think, is an important. I think it's also important as we approach these things that whether we agree with a police officer or not, um, you know, try to respond to that police officer. There's a time and a place uh, to do other things uh, and to make your point known, and you have ample opportunity to do that, whether, whatever the situation might be. I had the opportunity this morning, uh, I picked up the phone, I called uh, Monty, Monty Banter, Banter uh, who is Logan Hawking School District Superintendent. And I, I talked to him and asked him what had happened because last night someone, as you can imagine, uh, sent me uh, the video and I had the opportunity to look at the, at the video. Um, he told me what had happened and I, I'll just quickly uh, recount what, what he told me and what we've learned about that uh, is, is that the woman was approached um, and asked, you know, to put a mask on, um, said she had asthma. Um, at some point they told her you could go and get a shield, come back with a shield, that'd be fine. And went back and forth for, for a, a while. Um, and basically they asked her to leave uh, and she refused to leave. Um, and the school can tell you more of the details and the, and the police department I know put out a, put out a report or, or a statement that I looked at this morning. So anybody can pull this down. This is the police department's uh, report and they can get more of the facts. Um, but what the superintendent told me, uh, and made some notes, he, he talked about the officer. He said, the officer is our resource officer. 
works with kids all the time. Uh, to quote the superintendent, could not be a kinder person. Uh, he reminds people in a very nice way what they need, need to do. Uh, in this particular case, the superintendent said uh, that she simply would not comply with his request to leave. Um, he also pointed out that there were, you know, he says, we're very transparent. We let everyone know what to expect. We have signs everywhere telling people what to expect, what to do. We follow the Ohio High School Athletic Association and the Ohio Department of Health rules. Uh, and then he said uh, something that I think I'll always remember. Uh, he said, the Governor, any day our kids are in school is a good day. Any day our kids are playing sports is a good day. Win or lose. And we're going to try to do and follow the rules and do everything we ha can to have our kids continue to play. Uh, we started <clears throat> this discussion about schools and schools uh, and sports in schools a number of months ago. Um, we want to keep our kids safe. We want to keep the people working in the schools safe. <clears throat> we want to have our kids play sports, but we didn't know how to balance all that out. And, and we came up with the plan that's kind of an Ohio plan which is we let each school district make their own decision, and we let, of course, the parents make their own decision. On this particular school, you know, they, they made a decision. We announced that. Then we looked at starting sports. How are we going to make sports safe? And we came up with what we, had, we were hearing from people is we want our kids to play. We want our kids to play. I get it. Uh, we've had eight kids, and they, they've all played sports. Uh, we've got many grandkids that played sports. It's important. And so we said, how can we do that? And the way we did it was that we came up with some protocols and said, let's, get, let's do what's important. What's important is the kids can play, number one. Number two, we want the parents or, or, or whoever is important in that child's life to be able to go to the game. And so we set that out and opened it up. Some states didn't do that. Some states restricted football. Some states restricted contact sports. We felt that it was worth the risk uh, for these kids to be able to do this. And so we set up the protocol. And then we worked with the Ohio High School Athletic Association to come up with how this was going to be policed, quote unquote, or, or regulated, and how this was going to work. And they set forth guidelines, and we worked with them on, 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 on doing that. We've had phenomenal success. That doesn't mean some kids may not ha have contracted the COVID, whether they did it in sports or not, we'll probably never know. But overall, this has worked exceedingly well. And it's worked because Ohioans have done a, a phenomenal job. Parents have done what they needed to do. The school's done what they needed to do. The students have worn masks and done what they needed to do. And to my knowledge, I don't think there's been any other case. There might have been some, but I don't think there's any other case besides this one, where we turn and we see something that's gone viral and something that clearly looks bad uh, and something that no one wants to see. Uh, but I would just say to people who are judging the school, people who are judging that officer, people who are judging the uh, school official who you see in the video, uh, look, they were trying to follow the guidelines of the Ohio High School Athletic Association, the health department, with the sole purpose of they wanting their kids to play. And that's what they did. Uh, and I think if you look at 
you know, before you just look at the video, look at what led up to that video, I, I think that you'll get a, a full picture uh, of, of, of what happened. Very unfortunate, very unpleasant to look at. No one wants to see that happen. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's sad when we, we see something like that happen. John, I know you wanted to make a say something. Oh, well, Governor, yeah, I would just reiterate that, you know, people, people are going through a trying time. And I know that on occasion they, they, uh, they have conflicts with one another and we have to work through them and, and we have to do work through them for our kids and, and for the sake of trying to be able to continue to do these things. And, and, um, for the most part, people have done that. Uh, I know we don't want to see any of these things ever end up where where they did in this particular video. Uh, that's not where we want to see things go. And that requires all of us to, to exercise some civility with one another and to respect each other's responsibilities, to respect the rules, um, and, to, and to try to de-escalate situations and, and not to escalate them because really all of us on the outside watching those sports, we're, we're supposed to be there to support those kids. And uh, um, hopefully we will not have to, any of us will have to experience another incident like this. So we look forward to seeing everybody uh, on Tuesday uh, at, at two o'clock. Uh, let me thank you. And just a final, a final thought, if I could. Uh, we are all in this together. We're on the same team. There's 11.7 million or so of us. Um, each other is not the enemy. Uh, the enemy uh, is the virus. And uh, we can disagree sometimes about how to fight it, and we can have disagreements but in conflict sometimes. But let's forget, not forget. Please don't forget, we're on the same team. Let's try to pull together uh, as often as we can. Let's try to keep our kids in school. Let's try to kid, keep our kids playing sports or in theater or whatever we want them to be doing, and they have a, they have a passion to do. Uh, we're doing pretty well. We're doing pretty well. we got a ways to go, uh, but we're, we're Ohioans. We're tough. We are going to make this. Let's stick together. Thank you very much.